You're listening to the MBA Success Podcast, featuring a wide range of conversations with the best and brightest MBA alumni. I'm Ross Barclay. And I'm Chris Jacker. Together with our guests, we explore their past, understand how their MBA has helped them achieve their career goals, and gain insights into what success means for them. This podcast is part of MBA Oz, the professional body that promotes the standing and enhances the value of MBA qualifications in Australasia. So again, at that stage, I was 26 and was reporting to a board full of luminaries in the banking and finance industry, but on a board. And that's when the penny dropped. And I thought, I don't think I want to, at that point, I was seconded to Allen's. And I, at that point, I thought, I don't particularly want to go back to the environment where I was in, where it was very much expected that you were on a linear progression to be a partner. At the time, there were three female partners, which was great, but To be honest, they didn't have great work-life balance, so it wasn't something that I aspired to. On today's episode, we're joined by Susan Forrester, Professional Company Director and Member of the Order of Australia. Sue is currently serving on multiple boards, including Director of three ASX-listed companies, G8 Education, Over the Wire and Viva Leisure. Sue discusses how completing her EMBA from Melbourne Business School in 2004 has helped her transition her career, the importance of seeking feedback, and the issues she's passionate about in the boardroom. Sue, thank you so much for joining us on the MBA Success Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Um, As an accomplished professional director, you've built a reputation as a strong strategic thinker helping dozens of companies on their growth journeys. Uh, We're honoured to have you with us here today. And maybe if we could start it by uh, you telling us a bit about yourself uh, and the work you're currently doing. Sure, shall do. Okay, so uh, a bit about myself is that uh, I was trained as a lawyer, um, but um, as you'll find out a little bit later, I sort of have a fairly short attention span and didn't uh, particularly want to be typecast as a black letter lawyer in a law firm with a 45 year degree, you know, 45 year career. So um, fairly early on in my career, I worked out that I would use law as my base and build on that for a much more commercial oriented career. So fast forward 30 years, and it is in fact 30 years um, since I started work as a lawyer, uh, I'm now a professional company director. Uh, as you mentioned, I, um, I like the listed space. It's an area that I, I thrive in, and I currently have three ASX listed boards ranging from the ASX 100 to the 300, and then some other private and not-for-profit oriented uh, entities just to give my portfolio a bit of diversity. Interested to know at what point um, or, or what was happening um, when you decided that the depending on how you got into the law um, space and what you thought when you started law and then sort of the experiences you had that made you go oh maybe this isn't um, something that I want to be doing for the rest of my career yeah sure so it it was probably um, very much an evolution of things as opposed to you know waking up one day and saying I don't want to be a lawyer anymore and also um, just one of those um, a mixture of serendipity but also a mixture of just grabbing opportunities when they came so 
Uh, I was lucky enough to practice banking and finance law in the late 80s when the banking and finance markets were absolutely booming. I also happened to speak Japanese. I did Japanese in my undergraduate degree. So those who are old enough to recall that, or maybe their parents were, uh, meant that I was very busy buying up assets for Japanese clients. So you know, lots of golf courses and hotels, etc., uh, which was an amazing experience for you know a, a 22-year-old law graduate who spoke Japanese. Um, and then uh, fast forward five years when the credit markets failed, we then went around and acted for the liquidators selling them all. So in a very short space of time, I saw the whole the whole you know um, cycle, I suppose. Uh, it taught me a lot about um, the people I worked with and how, how clever they were, I suppose, working out that at the time when we had foreign investment to actually offer services to them and then when the markets failed, offer, offer services to the liquidators. So they were quite adept as lawyers working out how to, how to uh, modify their service provision. One of the things that turned me off being a lawyer working uh, in that sector was that I uh, often was mistaken for the tea lady because there was no other female lawyers and there certainly weren't any speaking Japanese. And as soon as you indicated that you could speak Japanese, uh, unfortunately there was a cultural mismatch in the late 80s and then they, you know, I often got asked if I would conduct a tea ceremony or, you know, and that, that kind of wore a bit thin <laughs> after a while. Uh, so I sort of, that was one reason. But just fast forward a little bit from there, um, I... My second role in the law was working for the Australian Financial Institutions Commission as the as corporate uh, lawyer, and I in that role I reported to the board, and the board happened to be made up of very uh, auspicious people, you know, including Elizabeth Nosworthy and um, Bernie Fraser, but mainly um, ex governors of the Reserve Bank. So they were incredibly well respected. If they weren't governors of the Reserve Bank, they were CEOs of the major banks. So again, at that stage, I was 26 and was reporting to a board full of luminaries in the banking and finance industry, but on a board. And that's when the penny dropped. And I thought, I don't think I want to, at that point, I was seconded to Allen's. And I, at that point, I thought, I don't particularly want to go back to the environment where I was in, where it was very much expected that you were on a linear progression to be a partner. At the time, there were three female partners, which was great, but to be honest, they didn't have great work-life balance, so it wasn't something that I aspired to. And yet I thought, you know, maybe down the track I could join boards. And, you know, I had a great experience working for the AFIC board. Um, I got a lot more uh, exposure to them than most 26-year-olds would, and I developed some great relationships with them. So I could actually, you know, Marion Michalitzi was on one of the subsidiary boards. She was very well-renowned company director in those days and I was able to go up to them and say tell me what it's like to be a company director and in those days you know 25 years ago the AICD didn't have as much um, uh, exposure I suppose and you know these days everyone knows it's the it's the peak body in terms of governance Uh, in those days you really had to make your own way and you also had to develop your own networks so that was probably that a penny dropping thinking maybe I won't be a lawyer for the rest of my life and maybe I'll go down the track of being a company director. The opportunity that I mentioned uh, that I grabbed was that um, AFIC was rolled up into APRA um, as part of the financial services restructure and I was offered a role as corporate counsel in Canberra and just didn't want to do that at that point. So the outplacement firm who was looking after, well, what do we do with these people who don't want to go to um, Canberra? said, you know what, we, we've done some psychometric testing with you and we actually don't think you're very well suited to be a lawyer anyway. 
And I'm, now you tell me, you know. <laughs> um, so I said, well, what, what do you think? I should, they said, we think you're, you're management. And right. So I had been thinking about doing an MBA at that point and I thought, well, you know, maybe that would be appropriate and we can talk a bit about the, the impetus for that later. But um, so as a result, they actually offered me a role working for – Suncorp, Metway, QIDC. Back in those days, there were, there were three entities. They brought them together. It was it was a very big thing in Queensland at the time to to merge the three financial institutions. And they said we'd like you to go and work with the new CEO, um, Steve Jones, and his executive team, just working on change management in terms of bringing three very disparate organisations together. And I said, well, that's great, but I haven't got a clue what to do. And this doesn't matter. You'll work it out. So. In terms of taking an enormous leap of faith, I thought, well, nobody else is going to offer me a job like that, are they? And uh, it was a job that they had created for me and they seemed to think that I could do it. So I jumped and I did. And um, and I learnt a hell of a lot and it did teach me that, you know, you can take a lot of risks and do that. Um, my mother didn't speak to me for a month and my grandmother cried when I said I wasn't going to practice as a lawyer anymore because they saw that linear progression that was appropriate but I sort of got them back in my good books after a couple of years and uh and then doing the MBA alongside that made made a hell of a lot of sense so and and that's where I discovered strategy and change management and you know it was just like a whole new world opening up that I really didn't have any exposure to you know having previously just done law. Brilliant. You, it sounds like you got thrown in the deep end there and then took on the EMBA studies on top of that. Yep. Um, how did you manage with that, the, the juggling there and, and were there any times where you really struggled being able to, to juggle all those different parts? Uh, yeah, I remember, I mean, I was much younger and I think you have much more energy when you're younger. Uh, I was a, I did my MBA through Melbourne Business School and they had a, a program through Mount Eliza where you could actually do a residential and go down and do a week of lectures and then sit the, write the paper or sit the exam on the weekend. And by that stage when I was finishing the assessment, I actually did an executive MBA, um, I was working for Queensland Treasury Corporation as, as a director there. And so because they were, a, um, well, they were semi-government, I suppose, were a statutory authority with their own board, um, they, I, I did have fairly good working conditions in terms of being able to say, I'm, I'm going to do two subjects a semester, would you support it? And when I did go down and do it for the week, that was fully accepted. So it was very helpful having an employer who was happy to um, both support that, both funding it and also supporting the time. It was also a really efficient way of doing an MBA because you could just lock it into your calendar and get it over and done with, you know, as opposed to, which, you know, suited me at the time. Um, probably the trickiest part was near the very end, um, uh, my husband and I decided to have a family and I remember being eight months pregnant sitting and doing the last corporate finance exam and I actually couldn't reach the paper because <laughs> of the belly that I had in front of me and I do remember thinking, not great timing, but, you know, anyway, it had to be done and and, uh, and I did. So um it was a stretch, but I've, I, a little bit like running a full board portfolio, uh, I think legal training teaches you to be organised and disciplined and I run a very organised calendar and I am very disciplined with my time and I probably just, you know, applied those those skills to finishing an MBA. The What were your expectations going into the MBA and, and I guess how did that align with what happened afterwards? 
Um, to be honest, I, I can't remember what my expectations were apart from the fact that I hadn't done postgrad study for well, I hadn't done any postgrad study. In fact, I had. I did the Securities Institute course, but um, you know, an EMBA is a big undertaking. So I think my expectations were just that you know I was just really scared about oh my goodness the usual fear that you have from going from not having studied for some time to going back into that formal tertiary um, mode. Um, interestingly, what blew me away was the cohort that I had. So every every um, subject was different, obviously, but the what. Um, Mount Eliza was able to do was there were CEOs and COOs and directors from major Australian companies from both Australia, Singapore and New Zealand uh, and that just really made the cohort very special and getting the access to those people. So remember at that stage I was only a, you know, I was a director of corporate services and HR and a Queensland statutory authority and I'm in WACO but, but I was talking to the CEO of some, you know, investment banks and and it was very well supported. Um, the, that MBA was very well supported by Australia's corporate, you know, um, uh, organisations. So what blew me away was having an amazing cohort, which then became a great network. And what blew me away, again, having come from being a, a lawyer, was just the thinking that was out there and these people having run these companies and the way they thought and the way they approached problems. Uh, but a, an amazing amount of mutual respect in the room in terms of, you know, I, I was blown away by the way they approach things, but I'd say something and they'd be similarly and I think, really? You know, so um, great sense of camaraderie and that, that was something I didn't expect to come. Sounds like you gained a lot of confidence just in that aspect of being surrounded by them and, and impressing them to a degree with the, the things you were saying. Yeah, I don't know whether I impressed them, but... Um, <laughs> but um, but, yeah, I, I got a lot out of that. And, you know, to some extent there's a lot of that goes on around the boardroom table as well. So I think I learnt a lot from that. I certainly learnt that, you know, thinking leaders who think that they're the smartest person in the room or believe they're the smartest person in the room really, you know, are setting themselves up for um, you know, not such a great time. And and you, there is so much power by harnessing wisdom in the room and, to be honest, just all the mistakes we've all made and learning from those and building on that and having the humility to admit, you know, well, I tried this and it was a complete disaster and, and learning from that. And you don't often read about the disasters in the textbooks. You know, it's usually the, the, the positive case studies. Uh, so definitely. And, and one of the things I do as a director, especially if I'm a chairman, bringing together a board is looking for that diversity of thinking and approach and humility and those people who are able to, you know, share their wisdom so that, you know, you can actually solve the problems in front of you. I might put you on the spot a little bit there and wanted to to dive into the, the learning from mistakes and see if there's any that you'd be willing to share with our audience about mistakes that you've witnessed or been involved in directly that have been important lessons or tools for you to help improve down the track. Wow. Uh, where do you start? Um, <laughs> um, probably... Whether you clarify, like there's been, there's been plenty of mistakes, but probably the learning I've had uh, over the years um, is if if you think something needs to be, uh, if you think a decision has to be made and you need to make a decision about it, make it quickly, get on with it, and, and I think they call it fail fast, don't they? You know, um, 
there's looking back, there's been so many decisions I've been involved with on boards where they've either avoided it or, or deferred it or because they just either don't want to get their heads around it or it's too hard. And I have to balance that. My natural um, personality style is actually quite impatient and it, it is actually bordering on impetuous. And, I, I do, you know, it sometimes it works, but sometimes it, it blows up on you because you've, you've moved too quickly and then thought, oh, if I just had waited another day, I would have had more data to make that call. Um, but... Yeah, looking back over corporate decisions, the, the the failures and mistakes have been not to push harder to make decisions that needed to be made and just get on with it. And um, the key ones I'm referring to are where we've had a, a CEO or a, or a key executive who's not performing and nobody wants to have that hard conversation. And often chairmen, if they're not skilled and don't have high levels of EQ and don't have great communication skills, just don't know how to have a conversation with a poor-performing CEO. Uh, so it just gets, you know, you know, kicked into touch all the time and, and uh, to the detriment of the company. So um, that would be my learning from that. Thank you for sharing. You going back to a comment you made before as well about uh, a low boredom threshold mm. in your your professional work. Mm. It, can you describe times where that's been uh, a disadvantage, uh, and then also how you came to realise that in yourself and potentially turn it around into something that's actually been an advantage in your career? Uh, yeah. So, um, I don't know whether I'll answer your question totally in the right order there, but um, I think when you're an executive, um, you you can be a little more impetuous because you're you're in charge of your ballywick or your area of responsibility and your team will get used to that. And if you've got a good team who respect you and, you know, have good levels of reciprocity, they will tell you pretty quick if you're moving too quickly or if you're, you know, uh, taking on board risk you shouldn't without the data you need. Um, but I do think you can you can have a little bit more of that in executive land. On a board, um, you've got to remember that you've got between five and nine members around the table who have very different levels of risk appetite style approach. Uh, and remember the majority of certainly listed boards, I know it's different in um, small cap space and also in um, private uh, ventures where you, you can take a, a, a higher risk profile. Um, most, most directors are highly conservative and they they don't deal with ambiguity very well and they certainly don't deal with that, um, you know, very fluid, fast-moving environments. So uh, that's exactly the environment I love and I'm happy to go in there and, you know, take whatever information we have on the table at the time and make a call and get on with it. That doesn't always sit very well with the other six directors on the table who are saying, you know, let's wait or let's get another report or let's, you know. So... Sometimes I annoy people with that approach and I have to, you know, read the tea leaves around the table very well. Um, but similarly, it doesn't hurt uh, if you can express that position and where you, you know, I'm not always like that, but, you know, COVID's been a pretty good example of that. Directors had to go in very quickly and support management teams to make decisions very quickly. And there was, you know, I'll give you an example. One of the boards that I'm on is um, Viva Leisure, which has more than 100 gyms across um you know, the uh, Eastern Seaboard, and we had 14 hours notice of a complete shutdown and zero revenue. Now, this is an Australian listed public company 
<laughs> that has forecasts out there and we went to zero revenue. So we had to make really quick decisions about you know, how do we manage our staff, what do we tell all about, we have got more than 100,000 members and those decisions had to be made quickly because there was a, an information gap. So it, that was a case where my style suited working with the MD very closely and say, we've got to get this stuff out. Um, other scenarios where I've encouraged um, things to move very quickly, I have a very wise uh, chairman who you know very well, Chris, who um, has said to me, I think you need to take your foot off the throttle a bit there. And I'm very open to, as I said, you know, seeking out the wisdom of others and saying, okay. So I think you've just, you know, you, it, it, it can't ever be my way or the highway and it, even when you're the chair. And I think you've just got to read the room and read read the culture of the organisation and also read their risk appetite. And then if you're still an outlier, then maybe if every time you go to a board meeting you're frustrated because they're not moving fast enough, maybe that's not the right board for you. So, you know, Touching. I hope I answered the question in a roundabout way there. <laughs> it was a fantastic yeah. response. Thank you. I, touching on that. Um, working with people and you obviously work with a broad range of individuals being on so many boards. Do you have a particular approach that you take in how you decide to, well, you know, what information to share, how hard to push a point? Like you said, you read a room. Um, and does that approach change depending on, um, you know, whether you're talking to the board or talking to an exec team? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, very, very much so. So um, I take the view that boards only do one thing and that is they make decisions. And what do they make decisions about? Well, if they're doing their job properly as governance um, as specialists, they're making decisions around strategy, which is forward-looking. They're making decisions around compliance, which is backward-looking, making sure things are in place. And they're making decisions around making sure that the CEO is performing well. So there's three fairly key, and, and obviously from those three pillars, you know, there's a, an enormous amount that sits underneath that. So um, you've you've really got to temper your approach and your style to the situation you're in at the time, the environment you, that you're operating in, the style of the organisation, the style and the experience of the MD, uh, and, and, you know, sometimes making a call on, well, how, how do I want to push this? You know, if I really am going to die in a ditch over it, am I prepared to walk away from this board? And, you know, there's no room for prima donnas, <laughs> and so I haven't had to do that yet. There's been some fairly close calls where I've thought, I'm just really uncomfortable with this call, and you have to just be able to reconcile that yourself. You know, obviously it can't be unethical, it can't be illegal, it can't be anything like that, but there are times when you've got to say, well, the other six people obviously have very good reasons for making that decision. I may not support it. Sometimes I'll ask the company secretary to record why I'm disagreeing. But look, we're talking about less than 5% of the time. It's not something that happens all the time. Probably more often than not, it's just that my inner style trying to move things along a bit faster than the board. You know, every board has its own pace, as every management team does, and you do have to some extent fit in. Otherwise, you're just going to irritate the heck out of everybody. <laughs> Actually, a flow-on from that uh, is a question I want to ask around, are there any common mistakes you see being made by boards that you wish you could fix? Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, well, as a, and, and these are varying um, um, sort of they, – they're coming from different angles. But one thing um, that really, really annoys me in corporate Australia is people who hang around on boards for too long. 
So the corporate governance guidelines pretty much say that after nine years, it's, you know, bye-bye chaps, time to go and do something else. And that that's usually, you know, three by three terms. My view is that if, if you've done three by three terms on a board, you should have contributed by that point. You should have been a very strong, you know, it takes quite a while to come up to speed. Then you, then you sort of hit your straps and then there's usually a couple of cycles in that nine-year period. You've certainly seen some strategic plans move through. Um so it's time to get off. And, you know, G8 Education, uh, I joined in 2011. Um, I'm 10 years on it, well, nine, 10 years on it next year. And it's just an absolute understanding that I will go off and I will replace myself as rem, uh, chair of the REM committee. And, you know, thank you very much. That was great. Time to move on. What I hate seeing is listed boards where there's been a chairman on the board for 15 years, 20 years, 25 years, and they think that they're irreplaceable. That really really annoys me because you're not giving the company the best chance at new thinking, renewal, freshness. It usually means the rest of the board's like that. So usually when you go and have a look, the rest of the board's been on for a long time. So you're not getting that renewal in terms of thinking and diversity of thinking. And I just think, gee whizzy, that's tough on the management team. Maybe the management team like it because it's, you know, like comfortable pair of shoes, you know, <laughs> but I, I don't like that. And it sounds like a hobby horse, but I've been amazed lately at the number of times I've seen that and thought, why aren't shareholders just up in arms about not getting that renewal? Uh, I did have another little note about that one too. Oh, and the other point, I suppose, is that what would I like to change? Um, I think the boardroom is absolutely ripe for disruption, of all the places, you know, when you think about the model, you've got a group of disparate people with very different skills and experience who come together maybe once a month for two or three hours and read what they're given and then are expected to govern magnificently. You know, really? (laughs) So COVID has certainly, and, and I've been on the case before COVID because of my connection with Diligent out of the States, but, you know, why do we meet once a month? Why, why do we have board packs that are a thousand pages long? Why, you know, I just want to, I would love to see far, far more challenge going on in terms of how can boards um, acquit their, their role, but in a very different way. And I'd like to see the boardroom disrupted in a massive way. And I think it, I mean, it would probably scare a lot of people, but I think we would get a lot stronger performance from management. And I think we would have shareholders who are much more confident about the organisations rather than just going through the same old sort of strictures. In the space of that network, is that a common um, viewpoint or is it pretty, yeah, is it pretty uh, unique? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an outlier there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, uh, I don't – again, because I've got access to Diligent out of the States – um, I, I, I do get to see a lot of what's happening globally. And, you know, so I'm not actually applying a lot of innovative thought myself. I'm sort of just taking lots of different things that I'm seeing. But, you know, I heard the other day that the Netflix board has a totally different model. So they actually don't – they they're, the way they put together their board papers is that the MD writes a short paper on ten things that are – you know, five things that are keeping him away at night, awake at night, ten key strategic or operational things that are important and then he sends that out at a particular time and then every board member has a look at that and sends back questions or comments and the paper actually gets refined until they get to a point 
where they'll say, okay, we're ready to go now. When we meet, that's what we're going to thrash out. And it's tight and it's well-informed. And when you turn up, you've you've all read the papers, you're all on top of it, and it's a dynamic conversation that will enable management to get on and do what they've got to do. These board meetings where we, you know, seriously, some of my board papers were 900, 1,000 pages long. And, the, and even though we say, well, the chair will say, now we'll take the papers as read, we still work through them. And, it, you know, it just does my head in. I almost come out in a rash sometimes just sitting there thinking, we can read and we have read them. So let's <laughs> – you can see where the impatience comes from. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm just going to continue on that point because you, you've mentioned that 1,000-page board reports yep. before. Um, yep. And it, I'm, the nerd in me wants to know if there's an approach you take to that to synthesise that information yeah. properly. Yeah, well, you know, as you well know, um, within the corporation's law, basically if directors are given information of any type, it's assumed they've read it. So, um, you know, management teams that serve up board papers of a 1,000 pages and, and think that every director has read every page and digested every page are kidding themselves. I mean, I... I do read all the papers and most of my my peers do, but, you know, when they then go and annex a couple of other reports as attachments and, you know, then the other thing is, well, if you've given it to me, I've got to read it, you know. So um, so how do I synthesise it? Well, first of all, again, the, I won't – one of my due diligence points of going on a board is that they've got to have a damn good board portal and I prefer it to be diligent because <laughs> – that's my comfortable pair of shoes and I know how to work it, but I, I am agnostic when it comes to board portals. But you do need a means of uploading real-time information to the boards that, you know, and, and again, that's contradictory to the old model. When I was on the Ergon Energy Board, it was one of my first boards very, very long time ago, they would courier you two Fool's Cap A4 folders and they seriously were, oh, 700 pages each. And, and, and I used to get a sore shoulder from physically putting them in a bag to get on the plane to go to Townsville to read through these these things. Now, that from the minute those things were, were printed, they were out of date, you know, whereas now, at least with a board portal, we can get up-to-date information in real time. We should have dashboards that have information coming through. Um, so how do I get through that? Well, I try to coach the management team to actually learn how to put papers together so that they sit there when they prepare them and say, what are we asking from the board? What do we want them to do with this information? And what are we seeking in terms of their wisdom? And keep it, you know, a good paper is a short paper and um, and you can always, you know, um, complement it with other reports, et cetera. But it's got to be um, a partnership between management and the board and management that drown boards in papers are kidding themselves. But if you go too short, then you're not giving us all the information. So it's a, it's a fine line. But one of the skills that you do need to have as a board member is, first of all, I'm a good speed reader, but secondly, just being able to speed read and, as you, as you indicated, work through what is it in this 40-page report that I've really got to absorb quickly. And you, you do get a knack of knowing how to, how to work through them. 
change the conversation a little bit um, to, to a slightly different topic that uh, I've been looking forward to ask you the question on. Um, and it's uh, that people often approach you as a spokesperson and advocate for women in business. Um, though I know you've said before that a diverse culture is more than just gender mix. It, there's a lot more to it. And I wanted to hear you know, your thoughts directly on, on how that can play out and, and what benefits that can bring to an organisation when done well. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, don't get me wrong. I, I still am a big advocate for, um, you know, a gender balance board and uh, all this nonsense around 30% is rubbish. It should be 50%. It should reflect the, the population that we live in. So I thought that was a bit of a cop out having a 30% club. I'll probably get uh, lambasted for that. But anyway, let's, you know, let's get up with the times and, and do that. Um, it comes back to my comment that we uh, were talking about earlier, the the chair's job is to put together the best group of skills and experience that they can to be able to acquit the board of its mandate. So, um, and and I think you've, you know, the gender point aside, you need to actually just say, how do we get that diversity of thinking? So you will have seen yesterday the Telstra board made an announcement bringing on a 32-year-old female entrepreneur who happened to be ex-McKinsey, you know, that... That is just fantastic because it's opening up that as a possibility to, you know, so many more. And uh, I was just thrilled that they got in and did that really as a bit of an exemplar or example. Um, I want to see a lot more young people around the board. I, I would like to see a lot more ethnicity because, you know, if we're selling into Southeast Asia, why don't we have a voice from there? I'd like to see more customer voice around the table. Um but more than anything, I just want to see people who think differently to me. And it's the thinking point than, than the traditional, uh, you know, diversity uh, elements that you would look at. I have a follow-on question from that, and it's, you know, probably relevant to me. In my current state, you know, finishing MBA, and I know that a lot of my peers are looking uh, at down the track and thinking of an MBA as one of the multiple stepping stones towards entering a board of directors yep. and being able to sit at the table, bringing that diversity of thought, bringing different age and different perspective to it. Yep. And if there was any advice you had about finding that first opportunity or making sure you're adding value when you do. Yep. Okay. So um, uh, there's, lots, there's lots of different traditional ways of going ab- about um, getting onto a board. And, you know, you can go through the Australian Institute of Company Directors or you can go through the Governance Institute because they kind of have notice boards online the way you can apply. Uh, I actually think you're better off to do it via a network because you're known then, especially if for your first board, because it's a big leap of faith that people take to put you onto a board where you've got no experience, but everyone has to start somewhere. And uh, apart from, you know, the, the, the ASX 200, where I think you do need listed experience to actually go on to, you know, an ASX 200 board, um, I think um, certainly letting your network know that you are looking for a board role. I think private companies are a fantastic place to start because, you know, they're commercial, um, they're usually run by entrepreneurs or, you know, com- uh, people who are really passionate about performance, and I think that sits well with that MBA style. Um, I think startups are a good place to spend some time, and there's plenty of ways you can get up involved in the startup world and say, you know, the downside is you don't get often don't get remunerated for it, but once you've done it a few times, you do. Um, I'm not a fan of encouraging people to seek out not-for-profits for the sake of it. I think if you're passionate about a not-for-profit and you've got one you're aligned to, by all means, you know, you, you'll be involved in it, you'll have a network there you could you know, offer to 
um, be on their board. But I think far too many um, people who've aspired to going on to boards, especially women, uh, go off and apply for all these not-for-profit boards and they end up being pseudo-executives uh, and they also then fall into uh, a pigeonhole of being a not-for-profit director, which if that's what you want to do, that's fantastic and I have plenty of colleagues and that's what they do and that's that's what drives them. But if you want to actually be on commercial boards or eventually listed boards, then you've got to go down the performance route. So how, do, how are you going to get in touch with people who would think, oh, Chris has got some fantastic skills in that particular sector, he'd be a great voice. So you've got to, got to first of all work out what is it you think you would bring as well as what you would get out of it. And then your board CV is very, very different to your executive CV. So your board CV should only be two pages long and it should have a killer profile statement about what you bring. And if it is youth and energy and experience and some damn good, you know, telco skills, that's, you know, that's what you would put in there um, as opposed to lots of people sort of see their first couple of board roles as what they'll get out of it and it doesn't go like that. Yeah. Some of the best experience I got was in um, early on was in private companies working for people who, you know, small privates who uh, recognised that they needed to put some corporate governance in space in place to um, grow and get scale. But, you know, often um, you'll learn a lot from that, but you've also got to learn how to, how to stand up to somebody who's run their own business for, you know, 20, 30 years and doesn't necessarily want to change that much. So there's pitfalls there too. Within there, there was a lot about knowing what you want, knowing what you can bring. And this ties nicely into you you mentioned in a webinar in the Women in Banking and Finance mm-hmm. the importance of knowing yourself. Yep. Is that something you've always sort of been adept at or is it a skill that you've worked at tr- truly trying to understand what's important to you and, and where you want to go? Yeah, I think that's a, a really good point. Um, Obviously, knowing yourself is something that comes with age. You know, you've, you, it's hard to be very, you know, reflective and insightful when you're, you know, 18. But as you grow and you make mistakes and you work out what you're good at and what you're not so good at, and you also learn to accept feedback, you do get a little bit better. And you're spot on. You know, the first point is knowing yourself and what you bring and what your blind spots are and what you're good at. And then, then it's about managing yourself. And then it's about leading yourself. And if you can apply those three things and then say, right, oh, I reckon I've got a reasonably good handle on that, I think I can now. And you'll be doing that in your executive job, managing people. And then there's a big difference between managing people and leading people. I think if you can look at it in those sort of steps, you'll get it, – it, that's always been my model. And I think – so one of the ways um, – you know, I don't really lead anybody any anymore because I don't have direct reports of any type. Uh, but, you know, you do lead discussions and you do lead a, a thought um, at a group level. Um, but I seek out feedback from my chairman. I seek feedback from um, other directors in terms of chairmen are usually the best because they're the ones who really are watching, you know, the dynamics around the table and just say, how am I going? You know, am I driving you insane? Am I reading the tea leaves right? Um, am I am I providing any value here? And or, or similarly, you know, and could you give me some ideas about where I could improve? And if you're open enough to seeking out that sort of feedback and then actually doing something with it, uh, and remembering that you know most chairmen are pretty experienced and. 
if you ask them, they're going to tell you. So you know, I had one particularly amazing female chair on a listed board a little while back. And um, when I asked her, she said, she actually said to me, well, you know, you're doing quite well in these areas, but there's been a couple of times I expected you to step up and you didn't. And I remember thinking, oh, you know, but I thought, that's incredibly helpful. Thank you. You know, but it, it all, you know, your ego takes a bit of a, a kick and you sort of think that. But I thought what well, was brave of her to tell me that, but I needed to be able to reflect on it and think, okay, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. There was obviously she had examples where she provided that and, and I was very grateful for it. So seeking out that feedback all the time is part of learning how to know yourself. Um, and I think it's interesting too, I was only just at a, a, a coffee meeting before I came to this podcast, the feedback you get from others which is not asked for that blows you away sometimes and you think, oh, that's good. I've obviously got a very good marketing uh, profile or there's something that I don't think that I'm particularly good at that other people think I'm not too bad at and you've just got to reconcile that. So I can give you an example of that because I was a lawyer and then I went off and did a an MBA and have done a fair bit of work in the governance space. I I don't think I'm particularly strong in the, uh, you know, the financial accounting space. There are people out there who've been either accountants or, or um, you know, COOs or CEOs or, in fact, partners in accounting firms who, you know, just have a 100 times more skill than me in those areas, and that's why I like working on boards with them. But lately I've been asked quite a lot to go and chair audit and risk committees, and when I get asked I often think, you took it, you've got the right person, you know, and I'll say to them, you know, there's a lot of people out there who've got that as, a, as, as their number one skill and I really think you should go and talk to them and they'll say, this particular fellow just before this session said, um, no, we want somebody much broader. We can get the finance accounting skills. We can, we can get that in. We want someone who's got a very broad strategic outlook who can look at our risk register and then monitor and manage that. And, you know, it's audit and risk. And if you've got good auditors, obviously, then you need to also be able to work with your management team to make sure that is there anything we're missing? What are, you know, it's, it is quite a broad skill set. And I'm quite comfortable in that space, but I'm certainly not your black letter uh, financial accountant who could run. And there's, as I said, there's many of them out there who do a great job. But when you get that feedback, you think, oh, okay, I'll take that. <laughs> Thank you. If we could go back in time, if you could give yourself some advice at an earlier stage in your career, mm-hmm. is there anything that you would tell your younger self or um, warn yourself of? Um, um, I probably uh, would have, it, it, not so much as a regret, but I would have spent more time, I probably would have done uh, a commerce degree instead of the Japanese, as helpful as the Japanese was, and, and it's a wonderful skill to have, you know, in terms of travel and culture. But uh, for what I do, if I had have had a commerce degree as well and then maybe even spent some time um, in an accounting firm, I think I think I would even be stronger in terms of that, that area that I just mentioned. But... Um, um, in terms of style and approach, uh, I, th- I think, again, if there's a way to actually temper that impatience and temper that, imp- you know, <laughs> impetuousness, that might be uh, helpful. But I think now that, you know, I'm, I'm on the wrong side of 50, I can stand back and say, well, I think I've learnt to manage that as best I can. 
and you've done pretty well through it with <laughs> anyway. One last question. Mm. Always an interesting one. What is your definition of success? Oh, Lord. Um, definition of success. Yeah. What does it mean to you? Per- personally? Yeah. Um, well, I, <laughs> it's going to sound a bit textbooky. Probably uh, having the discipline to set yourself some goals over the short to medium term and then have the discipline to execute those to achieve that. So it's not about, you know, if it, if it was in particular, it would be in five years' time I'd certainly like to have a strong uh, listed board portfolio probably with a few more in the ASX 200. Um, but, but if I don't get there but I'm still highly um, stimulated and excited and love getting up every day to do what I do, that won't be failure. It just would be it would be a nice thing. But, you know, when you love what you do and you see that every new role that you take on is, is a stepping stone to, to, you know, what you're trying to achieve, then I think it, it sort of success is lots of little bite-sized pieces of success as opposed to if I don't have four AS, you know, if I'm not on the board of NAB and Louis Vuitton and David Jones in five years' time, then I won't be a success. I, I don't think you can set yourself up for that sort of thing because there's always serendipity and there's always grabbing opportunities as they come along well thank you so much for joining us on the podcast sue um, there's some really great takeaways and something i really latched on to separate to some of the the advice was uh that really strong point about understanding yourself understanding your style and making sure you play to those strengths and acknowledge the weaknesses and don't be afraid to ask for the feedback and don't let the feedback beat you up if, if it is constructive <laughs> criticism. So thank you so much for sharing your time with us today and sharing your insights. My absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. thank you for listening to this episode of the MBA Success Podcast. You can stay up to date with the latest from MBA Oz and the MBA community, including upcoming conferences, networking events, and webinars by following us on LinkedIn or visiting the website. You'll find both links in the show notes below or just search MBA Oz spelt M-B-A-U-S. We'd love to hear your feedback about this episode or any recommendations for future episodes. You can email us at podcast at mbaoz.com.au. We look forward to hearing from you and hope you'll join us for the next episode of the MBA Success Podcast.